today I'm talking to Russell Mills, a visual artist whose work has often been used for album artwork for acts like Nine Inch Nails, Peter Gabriel, the Cocteau Twins and Brian Eno. I think I'm going to start with maybe a bit of a difficult question for you because you work with visual artwork, music and set design and things like that. You've got a broad range of things that you do. Yes. I was wondering how you would, would characterise your work. How would you describe it to someone who'd never seen or heard it? That is really difficult. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, to answer your question precisely, um, I don't know how you, how one would um, characterise it sort of succinctly. Uh, I mean... Because I think, I think of your uh, most recognisable works as being the stuff that you've done that's on um, Nine Inch Nails album covers and things like that. So yes. The, and the, the works that you do of your own that you show in galleries yourself mm. you know I just think of that as being the Russell Mills style is that fair to say uh, kind of um it's it's a big this is a, this leads to a sort of big cultural question I think or or an anomaly really um in England and I use that um England rather than the UK um there's always been a suspicion of people who work in many areas of creativity. Um, and I think it's the same in sciences, actually. Um, although they're far more open to dialogue and uh, exchange of ideas. Um, whereas every, everywhere else in the world, it seems as though people are celebrated when they can do more than one thing, you know. <laughs> um, and I've, I've always found that very odd. And when I was at art college, I, I was immediately kind of depressed with art college because I thought this is where I can try things, you know, experiment, fall over, fail, get up again. Um, and they actually put, they immediately they put you into little boxes, you know, you, oh no, you're in this department, you're doing ceramics or whatever. And um, therefore you're not allowed to go to printmaking. Um, and I thought, I, you know, I was thinking, well, what if I did some printmaking with ceramics and metalwork what would what would that create you know that will create another kind of hybrid um and even in art schools that was sort of um shunned that kind of way of thinking so I was um kind of angry all the time when I was at art school I'm always very surprised to hear about art school being anything but liberal really so it's, uh-huh. yeah, it must be quite strange to find any opposition to wanting to be creative like that well, I mean, that's a little unfair. Um, I think the art schools, when I was going through art schools, were incredibly liberal. I mean, best education one could have. But within that, there were these kind of constraints that were mainly, I think, imposed because of purely logistical reasons, you know. Having sort of five, six hundred students just roaming around a building doing whatever they wanted was uncontrollable, you know. Um, physically and I guess financially you know, how do we how do we manage this you know um so there were there were those reasons for it being like that but there were there were also traditional reasons for this kind of zoning off of activities um and there was a kind of snobbery involved as well you know if you were a fine artist that's another thing I've never understood why do they need why do they they so desperate they need to put the word fine before artist um you know <laughs> yeah paranoid um, um if you're a fine artist you were considered like like liverpool or manchester united you know at the top if you were a, in design graphic design you were you were down in sort of with barnsley or, or altrincham you know <laughs> <laughs> and they never they never kind of considered that these were sort of fellow travelers you know 
Uh, and they always conveniently forgot their own art history training, you know, whereby, like, one of my heroes, Leonardo da Vinci, just did everything. <laughs> when he was curious yeah. about something, he just went and explored it and, and fiddled around and tried things, you know. And I always believe that's what artists should do, is to try and open up new ways of looking and seeing and making, you know. To use your football, your football table analogy there, where did you sit in the league? What were you specialising in at university? I, I wasn't. I was deliberately not specialising. Um, even though I, I was put into departments, you know, you have to, you know, when you go through art school, as you probably know, you know, you go through foundation course, which is fantastic. That's where you're allowed to do everything. You know? And I always thought that the rest of one's art school life should be an extended foundation course, basically. But as soon as you've done foundation course, you're still, you know, I was 17. Um, I was the youngest in the art school. I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what, what I wanted to do. I didn't, all I, all I knew for certain about anything in life was that I didn't want a job. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed to me that art school was a way of avoiding a job. Um, yeah. And, it, and I, I needed time to breathe to find out who I was. But after a year of foundation, I, I obviously still didn't know what I was doing and who I was. But you're immediately forced to or obliged to make a decision which will um, kind of shape the rest of your life. And you have to choose a, a subject, a specialisation. And I, I really, did, as I say, I didn't know what I was doing. So I went into um, uh, design at, um, and I went to... I was taken by a new university in Stoke, I think it was called Trent, and they were starting up what they, they kept promoting as a, an experimental department. And I, I lasted two weeks, it was appalling. And I was, what uh, did they have you doing? Well, you had to sign in every morning for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the first pro okay. the, the first, they set your, the first project they set was to um, devise um, kind of infographics for crime rates. Oh, oh fuck this! I'm not doing this. I, I couldn't. It doesn't bear sound it. like a. There's mu it doesn't sound like there's much experimental there experimentation going on there. No, there wasn't. So I left. Um, but in order to leave, I had to find another college. You know, so I travelled around the country, visiting um, former fellow students from my foundation at Canterbury sleeping on floors and looking in other universities and colleges to see what what was going on and then I ended up sort of 20 miles away from where I started I ended up at Maidstone <laughs> um, which seemed to have a very um, kind of liberal campus um, there were some really exciting people there you know like Ian Drury was there teaching um, from from the blockheads Kilburn and the High Road started there um, mm. David Hockney used to come down there and teach Michael Nyman used to come down it was the only art school in the country with a recording studio at the time um, and I went there again to do design but I didn't really want to do design and I ended up doing sort of making pictures collage um, not really knowing what it was about and people told me this is illustration you know, well okay all right <laughs> you say so you know after recording Russell got in touch wanting to make the following changes to what he said firstly he said that Ian Jury was a visiting tutor at Maidstone College when in fact he was a visiting tutor at the Canterbury School of Art where he was on a foundation course and he also wanted to add that Bruce McLean and David Hockney were also visiting tutors 
Russell was the unofficial assistant of David Hockney during some of his printmaking sessions. And at the end of David's tenure, he gave Russell a print that he made, and Russell still has that today. Uh, so I sort of drifted into illustration, and, um, and then I was lucky enough to get into the Royal College to do an MA again. I went there to visit and I looked around the fine art studios and I thought, these people are just masturbating, you know, this is all about me and angst and none of them are talking to one another. It's boring. And I walked across the corridor to this scruffy little place. I didn't even know what it was called and it was the illustration studio, which only took 10 students a year from around the world. And it was full of the most amazing people I'd ever met in my life, you know, just really extraordinary eccentrics. Oh wow! Uh, like the do you know do you know the Quay Brothers? I don't actually know. They they make extraordinary stop frame animation films. They were and they were identical twins from Philadelphia, but they spoke with a BBC accent. Very okay. tall, very thin, very leonine, and they were in there working on a drawing together, physically together. I thought this is this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So you found that you did you fit in a little bit better with that crowd. Yeah, I, I went for an interview there and the interview went kind of okay. Um, I mean, I arrived and the department then was, the Royal College had a, the fine art and illustration and design was all down at part of the V&A building now. And, um, and we used to share toilets with the V&A. And I went for my interview and I sat there and it was running late. And the porter, who was an Irish guy who was there when I was there, he came out with a little plastic cup and said, here, have this, because he saw I was really nervous. And it was whiskey. <laughs> uh, and, and as the, the interviews were running late, I kind of sat there for hours, and finally my bladder was bursting. And um, it was a day when the, the toilets in the Royal College were leaking again. So you, you were given a key to go into the V&A and, um, through these labyrinth corridors to find the V&A toilets. So I scuttled off and had a wee and came back and of course I'd been called in while I was away <laughs> so I was oh, late man. for my interview I was stinking of whiskey and and I found out afterwards that my flies were open <laughs> <laughs> nightmare yeah uh, anyhow the interview went very well despite all that and uh, at the end of it they said what what do you I was I was asked if I had a question for them I said well what what can you do for me and they said, we'll allow, you to, we'll allow you to do whatever you want to do and we'll make you do it better. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds all right to me. <laughs> it was a real, um, a real kind of ethos of exchange and collaboration. And it wasn't sycophantic. It was incredibly critical as well. I mean, we had huge arguments, you know, about aesthetics and design and music and all kinds of stuff um, but it was basically constructive criticism it was incredibly supportive and it will also happen to coincide with the the explosion of punk so there was a, an incredible energy uh, not just at the college but also um, from being in London at the time you know do you think that the punk attitude um became part of your work did that kind of seep into what you were doing well I think it was there anyhow I'm um, I mean my my primary sources when I was at school the people who I discovered and excited me were people like Kurt Schwitters and the Dardais and I'd been lucky enough because my father was in the air force we lived uh, in Germany a lot without television or anything in those days 
Um, so I radio was my kind of um, my source of touch, my my umbilical cord to cultural things. And we also shared a lot of air bases because it was during the Cold War. We shared a lot of air bases with the Americans. And my dad was in bomber command. So we were on these air bases that were actually out on the airfields. There were American bombers laden with nuclear bombs um, surrounded by security guards. Um, you know, it was a really strange time. But at that time, they also, they also, some of them also had their own radio stations. And they were playing music that wasn't heard or available in the UK. Uh, so I discovered stuff like Captain Beefheart, you know, like 10 years before anyone in the UK had ever heard of him. <laughs> um, it's amazing to, to think that he was being played in Germany before the UK, really. Yeah. Well, you know, the, some of the, um, the uh, USAF uh, people in over there were really, um, they were just mad on music, you know, so they were this was part of their dna they were bringing this over to to play to their own their own people and a lot of really early soul and doo-wop stuff which was kind of extraordinary to a white boy 10 year old nine 10 year old boy in in the middle of germany in this english oasis in germany surrounded yeah. surrounded by nuclear bombs sounds like a very strange place to grow up if i'm honest very strange but uh, f you know really formative as well as i say because of, because of sound i think and um radio um i i got to listen to not only just that that kind of music from america but also various radio st radio programs that were there was a guy um on sundays everyone in in the armed forces used to tune into what was called two-way family favorites and it was a program that um, it was a request show where people in the UK would write into the radio program and send a, send a message to the, one of their relatives who was serving somewhere else in the world, you know, and and vice versa. And they'd play a piece of music, a contemporary topical piece of usually kind of ballad stuff, nothing too exciting. But there was also another program on a Sunday which we listened to religiously. It was called Radio Roundup by a guy called Jack Jackson, and he used to play extremely weird stuff very strange and he'd link it together the narratives in between each was he would take he would have um recordings of contemporary comedy shows like the goons round the horn spike milligan people like that um he'd have them sent to him and he would literally make copies of them and then he would splice them with um scalpels take cuts of these phrases and, and little um, uh, passages from these comedy programs and then restitch them all back together to make a completely different narrative. And he would weave this through his programs. So in between playing a piece of music, there'd be another section of narrative with this running joke and innuendo going on all the way through. And it was my first kind of introduction to what this idea of collage was. <laughs> Did you start making artwork when you were very young like that, when you were listening to that on the radio? Yeah, I mean, again, I, apparently when I was very young, I had, I had pictures in a, 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 an international, no, a national exhibition when I was five, but I don't really remember that. Um, and I've been lucky enough through all my schooling to have really good supportive art teachers who encouraged me. Um, but I guess at that time, because partly because we didn't have television, it was the you know as I say the only source of 
intellectual stimulation apart from books and other people was the radio um, and that's where this kind of cultural world came into my head um, I wasn't distracted by television until much later um, so yeah I guess and I was I was always making art because I didn't have television to watch you know I wanted to talk about some album artwork stuff yeah. that you've done a lot of your work has been I think a lot of the way that most people will recognise your work is from its use on very successful album covers. Notably, people like Brian Eno and Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails has worked with you for years. A quote from Trent Reznor that I always remember is mm. that he says that he has far more of an interest in the darker side of things than the light. Mm. And I was wondering if that's something that, you, that resonates with you because your work really embodies what his work sounds like, mm -hmm. in my view. And I was wondering if that's something that um, resonates with you, that quote. Um, up to a point, I agree with it, yeah. I think um, I've always liked this phrase, um, um, you know, blessed be, blessed be the cracked from, you know, from, out, from out comes the light. Something like that, anyhow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you need the dark in order to appreciate the light. There's, there's a lot of kind of um, cliches that one can throw around about dark and light. But um, I think most of my work is about transformation it's it's about so it's about life and death it's about the natural world it's about processes of the natural world in that a plant dies and while it's dying it creates these things called auxins which enable the next growth to appear um and nearly everything i do is about basically about that i wouldn't say it's about the the darkness in terms of um our consciousness or psyche um or angst it's 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 about the necessary that dark is necessary for it for in, in order for light to exist and and um i mean all the people that have influenced me have uh, they kind of occupy and explore that sort of same territory poets like Seamus Heaney Ted Hughes um painters like Anselm Kiefer um Schwitters again you know his recycling is is a form of bringing lightness out of dark you know all this stuff that we throw away that he collected and then made these beautiful jewel-like pieces from, that's another form of transformation. So every, and the filmmakers I watch and, and like, uh, they all, I think they all sort of delve in this, this territory. You spoke a lot about your problems with the way that art is taught and mm. the way the art education system works. Mm. And later in your career, you've actually become a lecturer mm. yourself. Yeah. You've spoken all around the world at various different universities for a long time. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell me what are the main messages you try and get across when you're speaking there? What do you find really important to educate people? Um, it, well, it's trying to enable them to find their own voice. That's what I enjoyed about lecturing and teaching. Um, I particularly enjoyed tutorials, you know, working with students one-on-one -on -one and trying to get them to open up um, and I found that in a lot of instances um, you find students that are doing work and they show you the work and you ask them what they're doing and they tell you how they've done it and they very rarely tell you why they've why they're doing it so hmm. it's it's trying to un, un, unlock that um, the actual thinking behind what they're doing um, most of what one sees is kind of derivative and 
and a lot a lot of occasions I found um, people had kind of secret work or secret ideas that they didn't dare expose because they weren't part of the course again this goes back to this specialization pigeonholing idea um, throughout my teaching career the number of students I found who were writers who wrote things down in sketchbooks and notebooks and never did anything with this writing they kind of hid it away it was either autobiographical or fictional or polemical um, and this was where I thought the interesting stuff was but they weren't doing anything with it they weren't kind of translating that into anything artistic or visual um, so it's a lot of the time I, I was spent trying to unpick all this and give them permission if you like to explore this territory do you did you find that they responded well to that um yeah although a lot of students were kind of a bit nervous because they knew that this wasn't part of the curriculum this wasn't what they were supposed to be exploring or they felt they weren't sure how they could integrate these ideas and other little areas of work into something more um, important or more appropriate for their course um, they sort of feared other tutors coming down on them with a like a ton of bricks saying you can't do that and and I always encourage them to ignore that phrase you can't do that whenever whenever anyone says that to me I think well I can then that means I can you know? BBC Hello, lovely listeners of the Who's Flying the Plane podcast. My name is Adam Crowther and I present on BBC Radio Bristol. The show I present is a programme called Upload. It's a place for anyone who is making, creating and doing stuff to send us what they're making and get it featured on the BBC. So you could be a podcaster, a musician, a poet, a comedian. Maybe you've got your own blog. Record it, upload it and make 2021 the year that you get featured on the BBC. All you need to do is head to our website, bbc.co.uk slash upload for more information. Upload with Adam Crowther. Okay, Russell, what would you like to offer up as your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem? Well, this is really obscure. <laughs> There's a writer I discovered called um, Margriad Evans. Um, and her books, the books that one may be able to find are her kind of novels which which are okay they're not brilliant but she wrote a very slim thing called autobiography which um is more about living her life she lived in wales she had a welsh name but she was english she died very young um and in it she just writes about living uh on this farm she's trying to run a farm with her husband um struggling and also trying to write um but this book, Autobiography, most of it is about trying to capture something that's going on right now and the impossibility of doing that. What makes it stand out so much for you? Well, the writing is, is, is lucid, it's beautiful, and, but she's also so desperately honest, honest with the fact that her task, her idea of trying to um, capture these moments, these fleeting moments, when they happen, is impossible. And that's exactly what I've been trying to do with my work. I want the work is a kind of constant trouble. It's um, it's static in one way, and yet it's lifeless in another. Um, 
it's fleeting in one way but it's also stolid you know and unbudging and and it's trying to find a balance between work that is evidently static because it's physical nature but also has the ability to move somehow not just um psychologically or emotionally but physically i i've been you know i work with lots of materials that if you move about in front of them they shift their colors shift their angles shift um your viewing of them shifts and i've been doing that with the installations as well they're all sort of to use eno's phrase they're generative in that whenever you are there in the middle of one of these installations wherever you are in the space your experience is completely different from someone else's and it's completely different every single second you're in there so she tries to do she tries to kind of encapsulate this in her work in this book this little book an autobiography but it's really hard that's a big ask to get all of that into one piece of work is quite incredible I know (laughs) it's impossible um you have to again you you have to um accept the kind of constraints of of it and that's something i learned with my fight against um art education and the art the art world generally about this pigeonholing is that some of it some of the constraints are necessary i mean a lot of great poetry in contemporary poetry is great because it's it, it works within known parameters and constraints that have been set up hundreds of years ago this is the way to write a poem um, and a lot of the poems that are freeform, so-called, you know, experimental poems, are a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Russell, how can people see what you do? How can they look at your work and experience what you are working on at the moment? And how can they keep up to date with what you do? Um, I guess via my website there isn't anything there that there isn't anything on there about what I'm working on at the moment because I'm working on it <laughs> oh, right. there's a few yeah, sort of there's a good. few sort of textual uh, news items on there Alex which kind of outline what projects I'm working on but there's nothing visual um, the latest work on there is from 2019 an exhibition I had in 2019 Thanks a lot for talking to me today, Russell. Okay, thank you.